Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read You Absolute Legends. I'm very pleased to bring you the conversation that I had with Oliver Berkman, who has very recently become one of my favourite authors. After reading his book 4,000 Weeks, which is about time management for mortals and The Antidote, which is happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking, I've become a bit of a super fan and you may be able to notice that throughout this conversation. And for that, I can only just say, what do you expect? I am only human. And I can only play it so cool. But we managed to get some good questions out there and some wonderful answers from Oliver, including who his top three philosophers are and the influences that they've had on his work, the efficiency trap, how you can make proper decisions without feeling guilty about it, cosmic insignificance therapy, which is an idea that I absolutely love. And mainly, we just focus on what we get wrong about time and how you yourself can view time differently now, meaning that you use it in a more meaningful way. Which, let's face it, That's quite an important thing to get hold of, is your time. Now, on the subject of time, it is time for a new sponsor. A Need to Read is now sponsored by Athletic Greens, and I am so happy that they are. I first started using Athletic Greens two years ago when I came across them, ironically, on a podcast. It's your all-in-one nutrition supplement. And the reason I was drawn to it, if I'm being completely honest... I just didn't really like vegetables too much. I have grown up a little bit now and I do eat more vegetables, but I've kept up with my daily athletic green shake just because it makes you feel quite good. Having your nutrition sorted, probiotics, a mushroom complex, 75 vitamins and minerals all coming from whole food ingredients, you just feel like a better version of yourself and I understand that's quite a cliched thing when you're talking about supplementation or something that goes into your diet that might change things, but they really, really do the job on this. There have been almost 53 different formulas they've put together since launching the product, and they are constantly innovating to make sure that they are bringing you the absolute best all-in-one nutrition supplement. On top of that, with every purchase, they donate to Stop Hungry Kids Being hungry they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020 and that is no small feat so to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read again that is athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance that felt really cool to say. Guys, I'm so proud that I've now got Athletic Greens as a sponsor. And I'm also proud that BetterHelp sponsor the podcast. Now, BetterHelp, as you will have known if you've listened to the podcast before, provide an online therapy service to millions of people all over the world. Therapy is one of those things that have changed my life alongside reading, alongside meditation, alongside everything really everything I do now is just to make my life better and therapy is one of those things that has managed to stay consistent and it constantly helps me grow and assess myself as a person whilst just talking to a professional who knows what they're doing because sometimes the advice from your friends and family just doesn't cut it if you feel like you're in the same boat if you feel like you need a little bit of guidance from a professional then look no further than BetterHelp. just head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read where you'll get 10% off your first month of online therapy All you have to do is run through a quick 5-10 to minute questionnaire and you'll be matched with a therapist within 48 hours. Links for both of those incredible sponsors are in the description of this episode. But for now, kick back, relax and have a listen to my conversation with Oliver Berkman. To kick things off, I I need to thank you, really, um, and kind of blame you for something. I had a bit of an existential crisis (laughs) pre-Christmas after reading 4,000 Weeks because I think 
naturally I'm, I'm in the, the book space. I read a lot of nonfiction books and, and some of them are centered around productivity and none of them have ever hit and stuck with me in the same way the words that you wrote in 4,000 Week Ads. I'm very grateful to hear it, I think I'm about to hear the downside of this. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it did send me into an existential crisis, but out the other side of that, about two weeks later, I think you have transformed the way that I'm going to live forever. So that is where, sincerely, thank you so much for shining a light on the things that you have in 4,000 Weeks is easily one of the best books I've ever read. So I'm so <laughs> um, touched and flattered to, to, to hear it. I, I think a lot about this question of like, do these insights just stick for through the seeing of them? And I certainly struggle with them to some extent myself. So I, I, my urge is always to say like, don't be totally despondent if, if, if it feels like you fall out of that mindset in a few months' time, because I think that happens as well. But anyway, thank you. I'm grateful. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm super grateful as well. And, and obviously, 4,000 Weeks, it's centered around time and how us mere mortals can use that. What is it that you feel people misunderstand the most about time? I guess the basic point I'm trying to get at here is that we don't, um, we don't pay proper attention to the fact that we are finite. Obviously, we know, I hope, everyone listening to this knows they're going to die, but we don't integrate that certain consequences of that into how we live our day-to-day lives. And I don't actually mean, we can talk about this in more detail if you want, but I don't mean where people's minds first go with that thought, which is like, oh my God, life's so short. I have to really strenuously try to pack every moment with incredibly uh, extraordinary uh, activities or, you know, do sort of extreme sports every weekend and and become famous or whatever these different, wealthy, whatever these things are, that's some people's route. But it's just that, actually, I think it's really liberating to follow through the consequences of, of, uh, of our finite time because it really lets you drop this impossible quest that we're most of us on to try to do everything and pack an infinite amount into our time and lets you sort of just more, more um, confidently and relaxedly focus on just like doing a few things that, that count with the time that you have. Yeah, for sure. And, and you wrote a long time for The Guardian about like you're a psychology writer, right? Or a, a productivity writer right? at times. When, when did this switch happen for you? Because I'm, I'm sure it wasn't always this like relax and sitting into the fact that life you can swim through well yeah and i mean listen i i i'm not necessarily the most relaxed person about this even today i think it is probably uniformly true about people who write books with advice in them although they're not always honest about it i try to be honest that they are you know writing the advice that they need to hear that the reason the topic holds an interest for them and me in this case is is that they've struggled with it right so in a way, I think of all those years writing that Guardian column as part of the same thing. It's like, okay, these questions of happiness, productivity, how to feel secure and certain, or whether you even can feel secure and certain about life, anything like this. It's all like, it's the stuff I need to figure out. And so I was kind of very privileged to get to figure out in public and be sort of in community with readers and, and, and things like that. Um, this is sort of where you get, I think, I feel like this book, I think of this book as where you get when you've tried so many productivity techniques in an attempt to sort of achieve this sense of total mastery and domination of your time that you're like, okay, if I've tried like 150 techniques to this point and none of them have, have brought the desired um, peace of mind, maybe the problem is not that I haven't found the right technique yet. Maybe the problem is something to do with 
uh, me or the question that I'm asking, I suppose. I think that's the realization that I had. I, I got to the end of the book and I was like, wow, I am a fucking loser. I'm that's not my intention. Anyway, carry on. I, I have a proclivity to be pretty harsh myself. So look, it, it isn't your fault that I thought that. That's just my default mode network to go there. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think especially nowadays, and, and you speak about capitalism sort of influence on this in, in the book, which I, I love because I'm just about educating myself on well, what society's like and what it's actually doing to us. Um, is that we're just filling our time with stuff in pursuit of these goals that seem to constantly be moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seems quite, quite a shame for that, for that to be the case. So what is your sort of advice in terms of goal pursuits nowadays? I mean, I, I, I've, <clears throat> I feel like I've become a bit less uh, sceptical of the whole sort of goal-oriented life in a strange way, because in The Antidote, there's a chap, my earlier book, there's a, there's a chapter that sort of, I think I stand by it, but it sort of looks at all the problems with over-pursuit of goals and getting too fixated on the future. And then I do sort of then in this book pick up this theme of like, as you say, like treating your life entirely as a as a means to some end that's coming in the future, right? So that you end up being so fixated on using time well that you actually use it really badly because you're using it well for the future and not obtaining any any value from it in the present. But I don't think that, that what follows from that is, for most people, most personality types anyway, I don't think what follows from that is that you can or should just sort of, you know, aimlessly wander around and just sort of stare into space or anything like that. I think it's, I think it's just a reminder that um, the value of our goals can only really count for anything if the, if the process of putting them into practice is meaningful for us right so so it's not that you shouldn't be headed somewhere but that um i i think of goals at least when i'm at least when i'm using sort of goal setting in my own life in a way that feels healthy it's a it's a it's good to have this sort of navigational point in order to navigational system in order to answer the question well what would be the most sensible thing to do right now 10 o'clock on a monday morning whatever um but uh it, it, it's not that's different from from treating the goal as a sort of shining star that once you get there is going to somehow um save you or justify your existence if you're someone like me who had productivity and self-esteem weirdly wrapped up uh with each other in your subconscious so it's more about like oh no absolutely it helps to clarify priorities and and then move towards those goals as a way of using your time in the present in the most fulfilling and meaningful ways but 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 not holding them out as um things that once achieved will finally usher in this period of you know problem-free peaceful existence yeah yeah what what would what would a problem-free life look like and, and do we think that's possible i mean i know it, it's sort of as soon as you start to think about this question closely it, it um it sort of collapses and and one of the things i try to write about in the book is how many of us by which again i mean me spend or have spent so much of our lives sort of uh subconsciously assuming that that not only are we going to solve the problems that we're trying to deal with right now but that at some point we ought to get rid of problems to solve we ought to get to this place where um there are no you know life is sort of smooth sailing and then i just think it's really useful to remember that like yeah I don't think you'd want that if it if it could ever arise. And in many ways, 
solving problems if you if you define it at the most general level is just what is what a meaningful life consists of right definitely i hope for you and everyone else that you can avoid or get rid of the worst problems you know um terrible illnesses or horrible experiences in relationships or jobs that suck the life out of your soul or something but the sheer fact that you wake up in the morning and have various challenges to to meet um uh, yeah, I don't think you'd want to get rid of that fact. I think it would be a very, very strange existence if we ever could, and probably not a meaningful one. Yeah, for sure. I think that's actually what the book's kind of instilled in me is this kind of like playful attitude towards life. As in, like I'm waking up, there are there are a set of problems and and they need solving, and mm-hmm. that gives my day sort of meaning and purpose, which is especially useful after my existential crisis. I think after <laughs> reading the book. To, to, well, and also the the other piece of that, I just want to, if I just butt in, but the other piece of that is that there are also too many problems when you wake up for you to get through by the end of the day or by the end of whatever time period you're thinking in terms of. And that's true for everybody. And there will always be too many. And it's, and it's an infinite supply compared to your finite capacities, which again, I think is liberating because I think that's a reminder that like, it's not that you're useless. It's not that you're not fulfilling your obligations to the world. It's that all of us are in the same boat and all you can do is spend the time you have in the way that seems to you wisest in the moment. And the idea that you're going to get to the end of any particular list of things when that list is actually infinite, you can, you can actually cut yourself some slack on that topic. Yeah. And I suppose that comes into like your, the limit embracing life chapter that you have on there. Cause we, we, we can't do it all. Um, but what is it about that that you find so liberating? And can you explain like the limit embracing life in a little bit more depth? Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is just in general, the act of being sort of stepping more consciously into the situation that we're in. So it's not, <clears throat> as it's occasionally misunderstood as being, it's not like, instead of acting in a limitless way, you should act in a limited way. It's like, no, all of us are limited in certain specific ways to do with time, our control over how that time unfolds, a bunch of other things. And it's just a question of whether you're going to sort of be in a conscious relationship with that truth or not. Um, There are lots of ways we aren't limited. You know, people can have limiting beliefs about what they're capable of and actually be capable of of far, far more. But there are these kind of built-in limits to being sort of human human beings. And I guess that the reason I think it's liberating to to be more conscious of that is, is, is just because, you know, well, firstly, in general, being in touch with reality is, is liberating because it gives you an ability to you get a sort of grip on things. You can, you can, um, you can make decisions about what you're going to do that are reality based and you can not sort of be constantly getting to the end of the day and realizing that, uh, you know, you failed because the standard that you set to define failure or success was, was one that was dependent on you doing something that, uh, you know, nobody could, could ever do. And then there's also this sort of moral aspect to it. Again, this maybe doesn't apply to everyone, but I always have been someone who was clearly trying to get all this amount done and become super productive and optimized in this way because I felt like I wasn't okay in some sense if I didn't do this, right? It's tied up with self-worth. It's tied up with self-esteem. And I think a lot of people are going through the day thinking like, if I don't get all this done, it's not just like, it has this edge to it. It's like you you ought to be doing this as well as that you'd like to get through all these tasks. And so when you see that you were 
making yourself worth dependent on something that's actually not possible for humans to do, to be sort of infinitely capable, especially in our modern uh, world of kind of, you know, infinite information and uh, opportunities and obligations and all the rest of it. Well, that's a huge weight off your shoulders, right? Because it, it, it leads to the thought that like, maybe you don't need, in fact, how could you have an obligation to do this amount if it's in fact impossible to do? this amount so i think that that is very sort of i find that like a huge kind of existential solace it's like okay maybe i'm just maybe it's not about my self-worth i'd like to do some things today because i have certain goals certain goals in terms of meaning certain goals in terms of generating an income uh supporting my family that's great but i don't need to feel that my increased productivity or sort of relentless uh increased efficiency or anything like that is somehow to do with like justifying my existence on the planet i mean maybe that's a bit too maybe not everyone sees it in those terms but i certainly did so yeah no for sure i think i think it's it's good and we've we've spoken about existentialism briefly kind of touched on the word more Mm. to be more specific i'd love to know from from reading your books what your like philosophical influences have been because it's evident that you've, you've surrounded yourself within the sort of the texts of philosophy like the ancient texts and and maybe the more modern ones as well can i have your top three philosophers (laughs) sure i'll give it a go um i do think that in some ways my sorry and why as well oh yeah okay i do think that in some sense my main contribution to the world when it comes to books and things is is actually just sort of the pick and mix approach and being willing to sort of uh uh take things from anywhere and 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 thus write books that combine insights from like the buddha rod stewart and uh you know simone de beauvoir or something but so i don't think it's very coherent i don't think i have like i don't think i can say i am an existentialist i am a stoic um i am a buddhist but those are three uh influences that um that definitely count for a lot. So in, do they have to be in order? I don't think I can put them in order. Three philosophers. Uh, in order. Um, well, let's start with Seneca, the Stoic, because he's clearly one of the earliest articulations of this fact that, you know, our problems with time are partly to do with our ideas about time, that we're in some sort of strange situation where we, where we worry about the fact that our time is limited and feel stressed by having limited time and then live as if we had all the time in the world. So he writes in that great uh, letter on the shortness of life, addressing his fellow sort of, you know, uh, Romans. He says, you have all the fears of, uh, what is it? You have all the fears of mortals and all the attitude of immortals when you when you decide how to spend your time. And that sort of idea and how he takes that and what he does with it is is clearly really central to what I'm trying to do here. Um, there's a lot to be said for Seneca. I think I think that was another like rabbit hole I went down after after reading both your books. I read less from the Stoic on the shortness of life and okay. pretty transformative stuff. I think I was kind of fed up of getting Brian Holiday's interpretation of Stoicism, and I was like, right, I'm gonna have to go get it from the orator's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> yeah, well, there's I mean, you know, there's there's it's it's all obviously is having a big resurgence, but it's but it's not hard to understand most most Stoicism. That's one mm-hmm. thing that's great now. Whether I should put Heidegger in this list because he's at the other end of the scale and is essentially impossible to understand, including by me, um, and he was literally a Nazi, so you don't really want to um, celebrate him too much. Yeah. I guess you know what what I've found since I wrote the book is that a lot of the insights that 
are most beneficial for me and Heidegger are actually also there in the work of a Zen scholar called Dogen. And so I think maybe we should just put like Zen Buddhism in this, in this second position in a, in a general way, because and I mean, maybe Buddhism in general, but that gets so vast that uh, yeah. it's a bit, bit ridiculous. Then I suppose the philosopher would be the Buddha. But um, here you have these ideas about, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's just a huge amount. But, but, but one of the things that, that stands out for me is, is, again, just this sense in which concepts and our concepts about reality are not reality. And how it doesn't mean our concepts are bad necessarily or wrong, but that keeping this distinction in mind is really, is really helpful. And Dogen, like Heidegger, has this notion, again, in my interpretation, that probably many uh, professional philosophers of, of studying both would, would dispute, that there's something beneficial about thinking about the idea that not that we have time, but that we are time, that, that we're so completely defined by our short time that it doesn't really make sense to think of it like your height, say, or your level of income. All these things that really affect a life totally, but they are, but they are kind of, they're not, they don't totally define it in the way that our limited time totally defines it. And, and there's a sort of a mental shift. I try to trigger this in, the, in readers in the book, but that I get from reading both Heidegger and Dogen, um, where you... It, it, it's not verbal. It's it's some sort of it's some sort of shift to away from. It's, it's away from thinking of yourself as somehow like the air traffic controller of your life into thinking of yourself as in your life. So extending this metaphor, being being the plane, I suppose, rather than being the the air traffic controller, um, away from being a, a a little boat on a river to being the river. Um, yeah. And and that shift, I think, is really has meant a lot to me and is very closely connected to all the ideas that I'm writing about in the book. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. It's, it's, that's a, great writers essentially shove you down rabbit holes. I think that's what, what you managed to do. And like, I, I've got <laughs> I'm glad to hear two Alan, I mean, Alan, Alan Watts know, books and I'm ready to like go down all these rabbit holes after reading your work. So it's, it's nice. To that's see. great. That's great. The, the, I mean, the excuse that Heidegger has, I think, that is legitimate, not for being a Nazi, but for being a bad writer, what I would call a bad writer, is that we're, you know, a lot of this, we're trying to talk about things that we can't actually even put into words and that probably nobody could. So you're constantly trying to sort of force language to, um, to point to these things. Do I need a third? I think I need a third philosopher, don't I? Because Heidegger oh, yeah. give us, give us sort a of sharing, give us a sharing, sharing second position there. Um, Again, maybe this is stretching philosophy, but I think it, uh, it would seem wrong not to include Carl Jung in there. Um, uh, primarily, I guess, a, a psychologist and a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst by some definitions. And the role of his writing for me is, is really when it comes to thinking about this idea of like, okay, what is a meaningful way to spend your time? What, what, is, what is meaning? And what are the different ways in which we, uh, we, we sort of sap meaning from life because of emotional avoidance, because we don't want to encounter emotionally the reality of our experience. So there's just a huge amount in, in Jung that is incredibly 
useful, almost as like tools for thinking with, because I'm not sure you have to literally agree with his theory that our minds are full of lots of different specific archetypes um, and that, you know, uh, men all have a specific inner female archetype and women all have a specific inner male archetype, maybe, whatever. But it's like, it's just incredibly useful framework. Um, and, and one very simple part of that is just this idea that like, what if you, what if you approach your life with the thought that there is something deep inside you that sort of needs expression, that's sort of there from the beginning, yeah. that uh, your job is to kind of almost get out of the way of and to and to let be expressed, rather than it's your little conscious ego trying to construct the best life possible. What if the what if you know, in the words of Joseph Campbell, who was a sort of heavily influenced by Young, what if you you have to sort of let go of the life you had planned, uh, for the so that. I'm paraphrasing and getting it wrong, but you know, uh, to make way to make space for the life that is waiting for you. That kind of move, I think, is really uh, interesting, and I don't think it necessarily requires you to sign up to Jung's whole cosmology of how the world works. It's, I, I sent an email out about this the other day. It's like we should never put anyone on a pedestal because, like, none of them are perfect. Heidegger's a Nazi, Senegal slave, right? right. Slaves were right back then, I guess, but like. We can't apply like modern ethics to these people. No, exactly. Like, oh, right, right. Oh, right. he must have been a misogynist if he's saying that there's a, there's a man in every woman and the woman in every man. Like we get, they've still got in, like incredible value. Well, I think this is such a good point. I sort of tweeted something about this the other day. I'm interested in what you, what you were writing because um, I, I find myself constantly in this uh, position when it comes to certain things in the books of uh, Jordan Peterson, where I'm constantly trying to express the thought that I think he like. He, he is also influenced by Jung in a very sort of in a rather idiosyncratic way. But he's another example of someone who has, I genuinely think, a few important pieces of the puzzle here. And if every time I say that, uh, you know, people in my audience are going to think I'm saying, I agree with every single statement he's ever made. I think he's absolutely right about everything. And we should all, you know, it's just like, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Yeah. And it applies it to works. me too, right? I mean, take something useful from this book and disagree with the rest. That's great. That's part of the conversation. Yeah, I, well, you're, you're not quite as controversial as... as <laughs> no, 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 no. I, For commercial purposes, I need to try to become more uh, controversial. Yeah, yeah you need to sub something really, like, <laughs> demeaning about a certain type of people in the next book. And I, I always say that I'm, like, halfway radicalised by Jordan Peterson. Like, I, I, I take a lot of his ideas, and I think he's, and I think he's great. I think there's a lot that maybe he should think about more, but I imagine he's thought about it at great lengths and, and that's the conclusion he's come to. It's just like, it's just, I think it is just a prejudice that, of ours that is deeply rooted that, that you are, that you're taking on the, you're sort of taking on the personality of someone or embracing the personality of someone just because some of their ideas and outlooks are useful in sort of shaking loose our assumptions. It's extremely it's extremely strange. I mean, when you really stop to think about it, it's like, well, I kind of, I, yeah, I sort of, I refuse to feel that I have to have one global opinion about a, a person in the public eye in that way. And I also kind of, um, well, I guess I'm, I'm just sort of re repeating the same point uh, twice, but I, I don't see why I should let a good idea be held hostage to a bad to to an originator of that idea who is in some sense maybe bad 
Um, and then let's use Heidegger as a clearer sense because it was extremely, it's extremely unambiguous. Um, like if I say I'm not going to take that idea about being in time from Heidegger because Heidegger was a Nazi, I feel like I'm letting, I'm like letting a Nazi limit my yeah. intellectual uh, growth, and I I refuse to do that. You know, so yeah. Definitely. I, I like it. So the email to expand on it was just a, a note on all this Joe Rogan controversy that's going right. on at the moment. I was like, that man has profoundly changed my life. I wouldn't have had a podcast, wouldn't have started jiu-jitsu. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've done psychedelics since listening to Joe Rogan. I've like, I've started smoking weed as opposed to drink. And, and like, these are all things people could be like, these are bad. It's like, I'm a profoundly better person since making all of these changes yeah. in my life. Joe Rogan, he's not perfect. If you look at anyone through history albert camus used to write on meth and right right Huxley wrote a whole book on mescaline and there's, there's there's no perfect person and and what we need to make space for is nuance and i think that actually starts when people look at themselves and have this yeah. like direct and honest conversation with themselves with yeah i'm not perfect in any way shape or form so how could i ever expect anyone else to be it's, yeah, yeah, I don't know how I think, we've yeah, got this idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's totally right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, then everybody, even even people who are, one has a sort of pretty unremittingly, totally negative view of, you can always trace back how they came to be that way to certain, like, dynamic in their childhood <laughs> and stuff. And then it, then you're in strange territory where suddenly, yes, you can't you can't quite fully condemn anybody for anything because we're all just human, yeah. Yeah, so empathy blinds us a little bit in in that sense. I, I don't know if you've come across Paul Bloom's work. Like it's against empathy. It's an idea yeah. I'm trying to yeah. trying to get myself around to, um, but not there just yet. On on the subject of of people being perfect and and people being good at their job, you you mentioned the dangers of becoming too efficient in the book. So I'd like to pivot back to your book and 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 your work. So what are the dangers of just being too good at the shit you're trying to be good at? Well, I'm not sure I would uh, describe efficiency as being too good at the shit you're trying to be good at. I think it's a specific kind of of getting good at it. So let me, uh, that's probably an interesting way to go in. I mean, basically efficiency is about processing greater volumes of stuff at a faster tempo. And my argument in the book is that like, it, it, for various different reasons, this won't actually lead to you spending more of your time accomplishing the stuff that you really care about uh, well. It's not that efficiency has no role at all. So I've sort of said it before, right? If, you, if it takes you an hour and a half to find your clothes in the morning or something, right? There's there's room for a system in your life to become more efficient. The problem, I think, with a lot of productivity culture, optimization culture quantified self, all this stuff, is that it holds out this notion that there is some kind of endpoint here, which in and of itself will um, bring meaning to your life, will leave you with huge expanses of time to um, get round to the things that you haven't been able to get round to and that you care about the most. The problem, the basic sort of generic problem is that any system, if you make a a system more efficient and that's all you do, then all else being equal, it will just attract more and more inputs to the system. So in the case of email, right, if you get really, really good at answering email fast, you get more email. Maybe that's what you want to do for the nature of your work, but but like, don't imagine that it's a way to get less email or to get on top of email because what is going to happen is 
your replies are going to generate replies and then you have to reply to those replies. If you, um, when I was first sort of becoming a kind of productivity geek at working at the Guardian in, in the features department and getting given these pieces to do where my sort of job and the thing that I was quite good at was, was really quick turnaround of, um, sort of feature pieces that probably had a feel of like I'd spent months researching them, but actually had been done in a day. So that was my sort of, and, and so I was feeling overwhelmed by this stuff. I found ways to get more efficient at it. And the result was my reputation being able to do it fast increased and I got given more of them to do. Now, in some ways it was a great honor to get more of them to do. It was very helpful for my career, but I wasn't getting through stuff. I was creating more stuff to do by becoming, um, more efficient. And I think there is also this problem where the more efficient you get, it actually, it's not just that your sort of personal productivity system fills with more stuff, but that it does fill with more junk as well, because it, it leads you to naturally sort of lower the bar to let something in, right? If you think you can do everything, then when somebody asks you to do something, you're probably going to say yes. If you've got a very clear sense of every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else, then certain times you're going to make that make that decision differently so you know all else being equal the pursuit of efficiency optimization in other words it goes by it's not going to get you to this place where you are ready to pour your time and attention into the things that matter to you the most and if and if you take that approach to those things themselves and try to be really really efficient at the thing that you consider to be your top priority uh you'll actually spend more of that time on less meaningful parts of it. That's my, yeah. that's my theory in a nutshell. No, I like that. I really like that theory. And obviously I like everything that you've written in the, in the couple of books that I've read. So <laughs> you're, you're in for a, an ego stroke in, in this podcast. <laughs> I'll, I'll um, settle for that. <laughs> you, you mentioned about deciding there and you speak about decide and the origins of the word in the book. People find it incredibly difficult to make decisions i think in in life because they think that these knock-on effects that are there that are, are obviously there there's the butterfly effect of any decision that you make um but would you ever just touch on the origins of the word decide and how how people should look at decisions should they find them quite overwhelming at times yeah well i mean yeah decide that that root um it goes back to this idea of cutting off it has images of slicing and knives right because it's suicide homicide um, there, those are, these are related words. So deciding is, is, is this act of cutting off, cutting off alternatives. It's not so much plumping for something. It's, it's, uh, sacrificing the things that you're not, uh, choosing. And I think people naturally don't want to do this because it, I mean, yeah, at the deepest level, it, the need to decide is imposed by our being finite, right? If, if we lived forever, we would never really have to decide in a serious way about anything it's finite time that makes decisions about what we do that makes them have any stakes and so by sort of avoiding decision and and sort of uh wallowing in indecision you you get to feel it's comfortable the reason it's more comfortable to be indecisive in a way is because you you get to feel that you're sort of keeping all your options open um you're not committing yourself you're not pinning yourself down to a certain track um, and so I think that's, that explains a lot of indecisiveness, explains a lot of procrastination. Um, the problem with that obviously is that it might be comfortable, but it's ultimately illusory because you're actually 
deciding all the time whether you like it or not. You don't have a, this is an existentialist idea, right? We're condemned to choose. You don't, you don't, you're not actually keeping your options open and then floating in outside of time. If you spend, you know, if you decide to spend a year not launching some project that you care about because you can't decide how to do it, then what you've actually done is decide to spend that year in that way instead of some other ways that might've been more fruitful. So again, I think that the message here is liberating in the end because it's that kind of message that says like, okay, you actually can't escape this, this aspect of the human condition. Nobody can. You're always deciding anyway. And then I think it becomes a little easier to maybe make that more bold decision or that riskier decision because you're choosing that decision as against some others. You're not choosing it any longer as against uh, not deciding at all, which is not something that is really um, open to you. And so I wrote just in a newsletter just the other day that, you know, actually I find this a really, there's tons of books on decision-making, but they all, most of them anyway, that I've seen, they imply that decisions just sort of come to you and then you have to take them. But actually a really good way to move forward on any project or, or aspect of your life, I always think is to sort of look for some decision that you could take and take that decision. So maybe you don't feel able to take the biggest kind of decision when it comes to, uh, I don't know, buying a home, entering a relationship, launching a business. But maybe there's some small decision that would kind of burn your bridges just a little bit that would create something that you would be hard to go back on and, may, and that you could take. And then maybe you can take that. And then you can, in this way, very gently and without being sort of beating up on yourself, you can make great strides because what you're doing each time is is consciously cutting away alternatives instead of what you were doing before, which was unconsciously doing it because you were already using up your life just, just, yeah. um, just in a way that brought less consciousness to it. It's a fascinating way to look at it. When you were saying about the decision sort of passing via instantly, not to be like Jordan Peterson about it, but I thought of a bear right? and I thought of a bear like waiting for salmon to go past. Like if it just keeps waiting, they're going to go past and then that's a salmon run over. This boy's going hungry. <laughs> so I guess like maybe I'll need to work on that analogy a little bit, but it's, it's a nice way to just grab at the stuff that's there. And I think people put so much weight on the decisions, like you say, that they don't ever end up actually making a decision meaning the opportunity to make a change that could be quite positive passes them by i guess that's quite a shame isn't it no absolutely and i think it again i think that um it, it's just freeing to understand that those bold decisions that you make as as just one one form of a decision that you absolutely have to take anyway so that you're not kind of it's an illusion that notion that if you keep that you can keep your options open, open. um that i don't know who said it but there's that you know if all you do is keep your options open then at the end of the day you're just left with options um you don't it, it's it, it's yeah i think it's really it certainly helped me a lot to to see that um it, it you know it doesn't matter as much as you think it does and that the, uh, and that and that that's actually a reason to make bolder riskier choices because the stakes are not what you thought they were which is like preserving my feeling of limit unlimitedness versus uh constraining myself and and committing myself it's like no that's off the table you're already committed because you're here so might as well take the do the do the most uh sort of uh interesting and meaningful things with it yeah. And I guess that gives you like a sense of control back, um, which ironically, there's, there's parts of the book, which are probably my favorite parts. We like 
this urge for control is something you'll, you'll never have, like just with the nature of life. So for people who I've probably spoken to and, and botched up my explanation of this, could you explain this kind of like illusion of control that we're under? Yeah, I mean, this is where it gets semantic, right? Because in some sense, we probably do want and rightly want control over our lives. But when I'm using the word control, I think I'm mainly talking about trying to achieve this feeling of security with psychological security with respect to your life and time, which is just not possible for us to achieve, right? This idea, again, that you can get yourself into a position where you can take on any, anything that's thrown at you, implement every single ambition that occurs to you, uh, plan the future in such a way that the future is definitely going to oblige you and go the right way. That kind of control, I think we want it because the alternative is to accept and acknowledge our, our limitedness and our finitude. And that's terrifying because it means we have to make sacrifices and it means we have to think about the fact that we're going to die and that this is it. We're not, life is not a dress rehearsal, la la la. So it's understandable that we seek that control, but it's ultimately not only unattainable, but totally counterproductive because in trying to get that control in, of your life, you do things like fall into this efficiency trap of, of uh, filling your life with more and more busy work and less and less of what uh, counts for you. But, you know, I'm then always at pains to say it isn't um, a recipe for despair and just being like, okay, I'm just got to be a doormat in life. It's through loosening your grip on that kind of control or giving it up at least a little bit that you step into I think what I want to call agency instead of control which is like efficacy being able to do real cool important meaningful things in the world um which is a kind of control right it's control over a more limited uh terrain uh but I think it's useful to use different words and there I'm saying like to really sort of step into the power that you do have Part of what you have to do is admit defeat about this kind of power that you that you uh, don't have, because that's the, that's what sort of gets in the way of of um, actually sort of you know uh, doing the things you could do. There's a parallel that keeps coming up with um, the twelve step uh, philosophy and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, this notion, I mean, I only know this in a sort of a cliched way, I, I, I need to know, I need to learn more, but like, that's one of the things that you go through. I believe if you do AA is that you sort of, you have to surrender a certain kind of belief in your own power, uh, the yeah. power to, um, control the role of alcohol in your life and to use alcohol instead of having it use you, you have to go through a whole sort of defeat where it's like, yeah. I am, I have, I absolutely do not have this kind of ability to control. But the reason to do that is so that you can step more fully into the power that you do have, which is the power to live a sober life day by day and become a function, high functioning human being again. Um, so I think that sort of second order thing where you're going from like, I have to surrender this delusional thing precisely in order to have the most sort of fulfilling and fantastic version of this non-delusional thing is is yeah that's, that's the move i guess yeah i've spoken to quite a few people who have been through the 12-step program i find it fascinating like I, I i don't drink alcohol mainly because i don't feel like i can control myself when i'm on mm. it just a bit of a knob and and people people find like a, a 
it fascinates people my age that I don't drink. So like, right. What you don't drink? What What do you do? Uh, what do you do at night time then? It's like, well, yeah. There's plenty of other stuff. Oh, you can read books, guys. Um, but uh, yeah, I think for me, a big part of me being able to not drink is that I have surrendered control to say that I don't have it when it when I drank. I don't have the control. I'm an idiot. Right. right. I'll I'll be accepting of that fact and and face reality. I think I think facing reality seems to be like a, a big theme throughout your books. And yeah. And one of the biggest realities to to face that I'd love to chat to you about is the cosmic insignificance therapy. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is just another way of I mean I think really ultimately of, of lowering the stakes and and making making it clear how you almost might as well do certain kinds of meaningful and important things with your life because the stakes are lower than you thought they were. I'm talking here more generally just about the fact that if you think about human life, a human life, even the whole of human civilization, but definitely a human life in the context of the timescale of the cosmos, you know, timescale of the planet even, um, it's all, it's so unimaginably, insanely tiny um, that, you know, yeah, it, it, the the only conclusion you can reach is that is that each of us has just no significance whatsoever in that from that um, from that vantage point. And yet, I think in a subtle way, not just the megalomaniacs among us, but most of us, sort of naturally, um, think of sort of think of where we are. Think of the whole of history as having led up to where we are. Think of, think of the decisions that we take in our lives as being incredibly momentous and that the whole sort of world hinges on them in some way. Um, you know, there are people who think this explicitly and become sort of authoritarian tyrants and things like that. But I think all of us have this kind of bias. I think in many ways it serves an evolutionary purpose. It's not something to be totally sort of eradicated, but, but it leads you to stress far too much about uh, uh, to to sort of hold back from doing things that you could do because you think you have to get them exactly right because something huge depends upon them. The other thing I think it leads people to do is to adopt a mean of a, a definition of a meaningful life that is um, that is just sort of unfair. That is going to that 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 renders almost everything good and interesting to do with your life meaningless. Right. So I'm drawing here partly on. Ido Landau, the, uh, the philosopher who's written this great book called Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World. And he, um, he just points out that, like, it, it, you, you can't, if you're a writer, say, or a musician, you can't, it, it's just very cruel to yourself to use a definition of, uh, of merit there, excellence, that, that sort of sees Michelangelo or um, Mozart as the standard that really defines uh, meaning because you're going to get like, you know, two people a century who can actually meet that standard. And also that, you know, there's just no reason to define meaning from the point of view of the whole of human civilization. And that there's something wrong. If we've got a standard of what is a meaningful life, that means that like me spending a couple of hours after school with my five-year-old son doing craft activities, if that's not meaningful because it doesn't like make a dent in the universe somehow, something's gone wrong because it clearly is an important thing for this human to be doing. And there's a million other examples of that, you know, things that, things that we know when we're in that moment 
at, at least in the best cases, we know that this is like, we're doing what we should be doing with our time on yeah. the planet. Um, but it's not necessarily going to sort of, um, you know, echo down the centuries in any particular way. Yeah, you can always start a long answer, Sorry, yeah. with your kid. <laughs> sorry, you can always start a joint Etsy and and sell your yeah. craft. Yeah, then, oh, yes, then, exactly. Try to try to make millions. Yeah, yeah then it's got meaning. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I think there is, and I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here that you just believe that the universe doesn't have your back, and I'd I'd love to get your opinion on the whole like law of attraction, the secret, and stuff like that because it's. Uh, well, I, I feel like you think the same as me, and I'm just trying to feed my confirmation bias here. But I'd love to get, get <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying there aren't versions of the law of attraction that get at something real, but the where I've been exposed to it in sort of mainstream self help, it just seems endlessly um, ridiculous to me. Um, I'm I'm more and more open to being corrected about this and anything than I than I used to be, probably. So, uh, but but basically, no. I mean, I think that's that idea that the universe has some uh plan for you is very is likely to be very debilitating to people right because you're going to this idea that you've got to find the thing uh that is out there waiting and that it really really matters to um the whole world that you find it uh this is going to lead you to sort of be constantly seeking and never quite committing to things it's going to be leading you to be constantly very stressed about how you're using your limited time. I think it's probably very different to that Jungian idea about having something inside you that needs to be expressed. Mm. Although I am open to the criticism that I'm being contradictory here because I don't think the universe, I don't think the universe has a purpose for you, but I do think that people probably have things that right from birth that they sort of are here to do. So maybe there's a contradiction there. Um, but I, I guess I, it's just that notion that like, right, because I think the universe doesn't really care what each one of us does. I don't think almost anybody, actually, I mean, this is another point making the book. I don't think almost anybody in your life cares what you're doing with your life. They may well care that you're happy. Hopefully people who love you care that you're happy. People who depend on you hope, uh, care that you're doing something that generates an income. But but it's this great liberation. I get this from uh, Stephen Cope, isn't it? I'm quote, quote saying this in the book that like, oh, hang on. Like, like, I can just do that thing that I want to do. Like, I can spend my life in that way, probably. But the, the idea that there's a whole sort of chorus of people waiting to judge me. I mean, firstly, if there is, screw them. And secondly, there just, there probably isn't in the, in the first place. Yeah. And I think that is, again, it's, it's, it's so... It sounds at first glance so sort of negative and I find it so liberating because it's just like, go for it. Yeah. Well, I think that's why your work has spoken to me so much because if it, if it sounds a little bit negative to begin with and mm -hmm. it's actually quite liberating, I'm all for it. Like, especially <laughs> in, in the space that I operate in. Yeah. People just want to hear about self-help books, self-help books, self-help books, but I'm, mm. I'm, I'm kind of done with like self-help books. I, th I, I, th I think... They just echo the same stuff. They're kind of push, pushing the same message dressed up in a different way. And the best books I've ever read are like yours, who just slice through the majority of, of, of self-help. That's interesting. Yeah I've, yeah. I've been really inspired by a line from long deceased Zen, British born Zen teacher called Jiu Kennett, who said that her, she apparently said that her method for teaching students was um, 
and I guess ultimately sort of leading them along the Zen path to enlightenment, right, was was not to lighten the burden of the student, but to make it so heavy that he or she would put it down. And, you know, I'm no Zen master, but I do think that I feel like I'm maybe trying to do something similar here. It's it's not liberation by saying, hey, everything's great. You can be really, you can be really sort of, you know, you can forget about your cares. It's liberation by saying, like, this situation that you're in is so unremittingly non-negotiable. Like, there's so little you can do about that, that you can be free in that situation because it's not on you to to try to sort of um, rewrite the contract of the human condition. And once you let go of that, you can just you're freer to do the things that you that you that are important yeah. to you to do it's like epicurus like cease to hope and you cease to or hecate it com- comes from letters from yeah. Stoic, yeah. but it's same like kind of cease yeah. to hope same. cease yeah. to fear like uh, i want to lose it all and keep smiling and i think like surrounding yourself with those kind of like words or, or constantly dipping back into those things it really does make you feel lighter as a person and i mm. think that has been the impact of your writing and then subsequent sort of rabbit holes that I've been down it's like I do just feel lighter and for like myself uh, the reason I like books is because my mental health was so poor and I like I didn't really have much of an option but to try and learn whatever was going on and and how to fix that I think most people drawn to books are trying to fix something right Mm -hmm. and after two and a half three years of reading I'm like wow I just feel lighter something goes wrong I'm like well I suppose that's just a little problem to solve and and yeah, I'm sure you'd be pleased to hear that because it's yeah, no, absolutely, and it's my it's definitely my journey, definitely my journey too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, amazing. And um, well, I think that is a lovely end to the conversation. And I just want to say thank you so much again. I know I've said it about four or five times, but your book's fucking amazing. I will keep trying to tell everyone to read them. Um, have, have you got anything coming up, or what's like, what's the plan? Well, I'm trying to sort of. Uh, I'm trying to turn my thoughts towards uh, a next book, but I'm not being coy. I just don't have much to put into words about that yeah. yet. And apart from that, I write um, this email newsletter, The Imperfectionist, where I try to sort of try out some of these ideas and, and uh, understand things a bit more. So that's, uh, and that's you can subscribe to that at my website, oliverberkman.com. So those are my two sort of main things. And then, yeah, I'm going around talking about it and, yeah, um, I bet you'd be sick of it. Actually. Hopefully I've got you before you're sick of talking about the book. So I spoke to James. You know what? I actually don't. Firstly, your in. questions have been, firstly, your questions have been interesting and fresh and new. But but secondly, um, I don't get sick about of talking about this stuff. Yeah, maybe I will one day. But um, I just think like, I don't know, I'm obsessed with it really. So yeah. it's, 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 it's a pleasure to talk about it and pick up new ideas and ways of thinking about things for other people. Yeah, oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Well, it's me again. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. I really hope you got as much from that conversation as I did. The book is available. It is selling fast. 4,000 Weeks has been extremely popular. And I'd also recommend The Antidote. I'll do a review of The Antidote soon on the podcast so you can get the key ideas and understand whether it's going to be something for you. But I do think it holds some ideas that are truly pretty transformative much like with with 4000 weeks so the links for the sponsors are in the description if you'd like to sign up to emails that'll be awesome i'll send you an email maybe once or twice a week with something insightful and then also at the end me saying hey listen to my podcast because that's how marketing emails work right but i try and make them as as unmarkety 
as possible. It's not a word, but we'll use it in this instance. You have been a legend for listening. You're also going to be a legend when you share this podcast. And if you share this podcast, I love you. Goodbye.